right, well, making predictions can be a risky business. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that situation before where maybe you've made a prediction and it actually came true, can be a really cool thing, but also can be kind of a sad thing depending on what you have predicted. I wanna tell you, two weeks ago, I took uh, our, some of our high school students, we went on a mission trip to Juarez, Mexico. We built a house for family in need, working alongside the ministry of Casas por Cristo, a great ministry that we support here at Mount Pleasant. And here's a picture of our group. Um, it was a great experience. I wanna, because I'm up here, I'm just gonna tell you about it, okay? So uh, this, is, this is Lalo and his family, and uh, they're, they're a family of six, so a husband and wife and four boys, and they lived in a home that was a one-bedroom home. And so they were just, I mean, they just didn't have any space, okay? And so uh, the local pastor and the church identified this as a great family to support. And so we came along in a couple of days, we built them this home that, uh, as you can see, is standing and looks very structurally sound, right? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's good. And uh, it was a great, great experience. I want to tell you also about one of the things that we did, just because I think that you should know uh, as part of our church family, a part of the ministry of Casas is uh, during, during the week when the house is pretty much finished, we have a community night, so we bring some hot dogs and we grill them, and we just invite people in this community to come and to celebrate with this family their, their new home. And Casas had never built in this neighborhood before. This was a new neighborhood for them. And so we had this event, and the pastor's wife gave this gospel message to everybody who was there. Six people came to Christ. Ten people, ten families uh, wanted, wanted to start attending their church, and so it was a huge, huge success. And so I wanted to share that with you. Yeah, it was a, it was a great trip. I'd highly, encourage, I'd highly encourage you to take one of these trips, not, maybe not a Casas trip, but just a mission experience. In fact, we're sending another team here in four weeks to go and build two more homes down in Juarez. But when I was there, I made a prediction, okay? I gotta tell you this. You see, one of our freshman boys had, uh, had their family had bought a gift for their small group leader, and they were both going on this trip, okay? So this is Christian and his small group leader, uh, Mike is, well, I can't even see Mike. Where is it? He's in there somewhere, right? That Mike's right there, okay? And they bought him a gift. They bought him a personalized hammer, okay? So I don't know if you've ever seen these things before. It's a real nice gift. Had his name inscribed on it. Uh, said freshman boys, had the year and everything like that. And they gave him this as a Christmas gift um, because they were both going on this trip. It was, a, it, was a, it was a great idea, right? Well, jokingly, jokingly, I said, man, wouldn't it be funny if that hammer broke when you started using it? Oh, you see where this is going. Okay. <laughs> sure enough, on day one, that hammer snaps in half. All right. Apparently, these customized uh, hammers aren't made for framing walls on homes. Okay, they're more just like something to look at. But I felt so bad about that. It was kind of funny too, right? But you know, so Mike Steamer, if you see him, he he needs a new hammer. But my prediction came true. Predictions can be risky. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are people out there who, who get tattoos about who they think is gonna win the Super Bowl. Have you seen this before? People will get tattoos making predictions on who's, and so if you find a Cowboys fan or a Bears fan, you know, that's just, that's just poor luck, right? If they get a tattoo, because it's just not gonna happen, okay? But, you know, people do this. It's, it's really unfortunate. I've seen um, predictions of uh, people or, or religions that predict the end of the world, right? That's been happening forever. They're wrong, okay? They're always wrong. I wouldn't suggest getting into that business. Do you remember the fuss about Y2K? All right? Remember that? I was, I was in middle school when that happened, but I remember everybody was like, our computers, they're going to blow up, and, you know, it's just going to be awful. They were wrong, right? Making predictions can be a little risky. But one of the things that we've seen 
leading up to Easter is that much of Jesus's life was predicted. We've been working through the 40 days uh, leading up to Easter. If you've seen this on social media, on, on Facebook or Instagram, uh, our staff has put together these videos about all these prophecies that we find in the Old Testament about Jesus that was fulfilled. And, and we see that much of Jesus's life was predicted. Did you know that when Jesus walked this earth, he fulfilled at least 300 prophecies that we found in the Old Testament? It's amazing. It's it's divine, really, and there's still prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled when Jesus returns. But one of the most interesting things, I think, as we head into this new series called Promise Fulfilled, is that Jesus himself made plenty of predictions about himself. I want to remind you and let you know that Pastor Chris will be back in the pulpit next weekend for Easter, in case you're curious or wondering when he's going to return. He'll be back next week, and he's going to talk about how Jesus predicted his resurrection, Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody predicted their own death and resurrection and actually pulled it off, maybe we ought to listen to what else that person had to say as well, right? Seems a little bit impossible. Uh, Seems a little bit um, difficult and bold to make those predictions and then to actually accomplish it unless you are divine. On top of all of that, one of the most unique things that we see is that Jesus was able to predict the people who would hurt him along the way. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, that Jesus knew what was going to happen to him, and yet how he lived and how he treated people didn't change. That's what we're going to look at today as we prepare for Easter. Jesus knew. He knew, and how he responded to the people that hurt him is significant. Maybe the question I want you to begin to ponder as we start this is, have you ever been betrayed by somebody? I'm sure that you have, and we're not going to share those stories here in this moment, but I'm sure we've had moments where people have betrayed us. Maybe someone has lied to you. Maybe someone has uh, forgot you when you needed them the most. Maybe it was a family or a friend or uh, someone really close to you that that did something that hurts you deeply, and it was hard for you to accept. Whenever we find ourselves hurt by someone else, how we respond kind of reveals what's inside of our heart. Jesus knew that those closest to him would betray him. But not only did he know that it would happen, what he does with that knowledge is important to us. What we'll discover today is really important for us because I think it has the opportunity to shape your, your life, shape your heart to be more like Christ. And if you're able to, to see the way that Jesus responds to betrayal, maybe you'll be able to live differently. But maybe even on top of that, maybe what's more important is that you'll see even when you find yourself being the one that turns your back on God or on Christ, that you can find love in the midst of that. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26 in your Bibles or on your, on your phones, your tablets, whatever you have. We got a little bit of a lengthy passage today, but I think it's important to have this in front of you. Uh, we're going to look at a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples on his very last night alive. Next morning, Jesus would begin his way to the cross But here, he shares some things, and he predicts some things that have a lot of significance for us. And so I want to invite you, if you're willing and you're able, to stand with me as we read our text like we do every week to honor the Scriptures. It'll be Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 25. This is what it says. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. 
They were very sad, and they began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. I want you to skip down to verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. All right, thank you guys. You can be seated. We always like to honor God's word by standing and reading it as a part of our scripture. You know, right here we see three different predictions of betrayal from Jesus. And maybe you saw that as we read it. And what I want to show to you today is not just the predictions, but how Jesus responded to them and then what it means for us. So let's start with the most obvious one, the most popular one. The one that we're all very familiar with is that Jesus predicted the betrayal of Judas. Let's be honest for a minute. Judas is not a name that people name their babies after, right? Uh, we know Judas's story. We, we know what he did. But Judas made the ultimate, ultimate move of betrayal by turning Jesus into the officials who wanted him to be arrested in secret. And he did it all for 30 pieces of silver that he'd eventually try to give back. We just read what Jesus said, but in case you missed it, here it is in verse 21. He says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. What a moment that must have been, really, if you think about it, that it, the scripture says they were all sad, right? They were all sad when Jesus said this. I don't think this is something that Jesus took any joy in, like any joy in predicting this. Like I, maybe like I took joy in the little boy's hammer snapping in half, right? But um, I, I don't think he took joy in it. But it's also important to notice that Jesus wasn't the only person to predict this. Look what the psalmist says in Psalm 41.9. It says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. So Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, but what I want to focus on here is how Jesus responded to Judas despite predicting his betrayal. You, you may know this, that our Bibles have uh, four books that are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're the accounts of Jesus's life and his ministry written down in account for us. And having four of them is a pretty special thing because it gives us a complete, more complete view of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And so if you were to kind of think of it like this, you know, uh, if you saw four people or if, if we all saw a fight break out and four people recorded what happened, you might get different pieces of the story and some people might omit a little bit. But if you put them all together, you're going to get a, a more complete view of how this whole thing happened. That's what the Gospels are. And the reason I tell you that is because the Gospel of John adds some very significant things for us some significant elements that are going to be important for us to see and to recognize as a part of what we talk about today. In the same account of this very last night, this conversation of what happens, John writes about something significant that takes place at this meal. It tells us in John chapter 13 that Jesus washed all of the disciples' feet. All of them. Moments before, 
sharing with his disciples this prediction that Judas would betray him, he washes everyone's feet, including Judas. Isn't that crazy to think about? Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and yet he washed his feet. It's really what I want you to grasp from this very first part, is that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and he still washed his feet. The implications for us because of this truth are important. It means that Jesus chose to serve even the person who wronged him the most. What do you think that means for you? Honestly, what do you think that truth means for you? I'm not sure how you respond when you feel wronged, when people do things against you. This was the ultimate betrayal. What do you do when someone hurts you deeply? What do you do? Do you, do you shut them out of your life? You try to get revenge on them? Do you gossip about them to anyone who will listen? Those are sometimes the things that we find ourselves doing. Jesus chose to serve. Jesus chose to love. And I just wonder, if we pause for a second, and just think about that reality, that truth, if we could do that in our lives. This is important because this act of love is something that Jesus taught about. This isn't just one example. This is something that Jesus tried to instill in his followers. We find this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Look what he says. You're probably familiar with these words. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you take and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, these words were, were in connection to the Old Testament law of retribution. It was the, it was the idea of uh, being able to match the crime with the punishment, right? An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Match the crime with the punishment. What Jesus introduces here is grace. It's love, and it's what he says that you... And I should do when someone hurts us. And it's how he proactively treated Judas, even though he knew he would betray him. So I want to challenge you with this question first, or this, this truth. It's just to extend grace to people in your life. It's very simple. But recognize you're going to be hurt by people. People are going to, people are going to hurt you. They're going to betray you in your life. But the way of Jesus calls us to extend grace to people in your life. One of the ways that I've tried to do this in my life is by living by this philosophy of assuming the best. This gets me in trouble sometimes, to be honest with you, but this is something I've tried to do. I'm not perfect at, but I try to assume the best in people. So what I mean by that is, is I assume, whether I'm right or wrong, because sometimes I am wrong, but whether I'm right or wrong, I assume that people have the best intentions, okay? Now, it doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong, because this is about my attitude and how I choose to treat people. And so what that looks like is when someone cuts me off in traffic, I assume that they didn't see me, right? When someone makes a complete stop at a roundabout, I assume that they've never seen one before, right? When someone says something uh, about me, I assume that they didn't intend to hurt my feelings. Whether I'm right or wrong doesn't really matter because what you do when this happens, when you assume the best of people, is you begin to extend grace in, into people's lives. And that's what this practically looks like. But secondly, secondly, I want you to recognize that Jesus gives you this same grace. He knows that you're going to sin. He knows that you're going to turn away. From time to time, you're going to turn your back from him. And yet he loves you right where you are. I hope that propels you in how you live right now. 
ultimately. I think that Judas was overwhelmed by the love and the grace that he felt from Jesus. He tried to give that silver back eventually, but he couldn't undo what had already been done. But we're all familiar with Judas' story. We know, we know what he did, and we know that Jesus washed his feet even despite of that. But there's other predictions that Jesus made as well. I want to continue talking this through with you, is that Jesus predicted the abandonment of the disciples. Now, this is different from betrayal, okay? The rest of the disciples would not actively betray Jesus like Judas did, but they would abandon them, abandon him, and Jesus knew it. Look what he said in verse 31, the verse, verse part of 31. He says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. And that's exactly what happened. If you were to fast forward to the arrest of Jesus, when, when Judas had handed him over, um, and now Jesus has been taken into custody by these, um, a detachment of sol- soldiers that were led by the chief priests and the Pharisees. We read this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 55 and 56. It says this, In that hour Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then... All the disciples deserted him and fled. It's a sad part of the story, honestly, because Jesus has given his life to these guys these past couple years, mentoring them, leading them. And in this moment, in his greatest moment of need, they all desert him and leave. And so Jesus predicted that his disciples would all fall away, and they all deserted him and ran away hours later. But do you want to know what happened in between all of that? I bet you're on the edge of your seat just wondering, you know, why is this important? What happened in between all of this is significant. When Jesus spoke these words that they would all fall away, he was saying them, they were, at the, they were entering the Mount of Olives. What we learn next is that they went into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives, very close. And Jesus would pray. Do you want to know what John chapter 17 tells us that Jesus prayed about in this moment? Prays for you, prays for me, and he prays for his disciples. Jesus knew that his disciples would fall away, and he prayed for them. Again, this is the response to what he knew, how he would be hurt by the people closest to him, and yet how he treated them that we have to take notice of here. He knew that they would all leave him at his most vulnerable moment, and yet he prays for them. You can read about it in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19, but here's one of the things that Jesus prays for them. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And I love this picture. I love it because moments before, he knew his disciples would all leave, And moments later, they did. But in the midst, in the middle of that, he prays for their protection and he prays for their unification. And I just have to wonder if we could ask ourselves what this would look like for us. What what would it look like for us to do this? A few moments ago, we read what Jesus said about retribution, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But he adds this a few seconds later in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, these things that Jesus is doing are things that Jesus 
has taught about. What do you think it'd look like for you to pray for the people that you find yourself at odds with? Notice I didn't say pray about them, but pray for them. It could be a significant thing. That's what Jesus has called us to do. That's what Jesus modeled for us here in this moment. I think your entire persona could change if you begin praying for people that maybe aren't praying for you. One of the ways that I've found myself doing this, a few years ago, I did something called a prayer calendar. And so what I did was I I marked out, um, I had a calendar by by the month with with all the days. That's how calendars work, sorry. And in, in each box, in each box, I wrote someone's name. And every single day, I tried to pray for somebody new, specifically praying for somebody new. And so I it was a really cool thing. And so I prayed for all my family. I prayed for all my friends. I prayed for like uh, my small group. I prayed for all my volunteers. I, I just, I started praying for people. But do you want to know what happened? Because there's 365 days in a year. I got to the point where I had a hard time coming up with people that I wanted to pray for. In fact, I think I might have prayed for my dog before I picked some other people. And that's because, and what it revealed to me was that we often avoid praying for people that we need to the most because of either our strained relationship with them or maybe our lack of interest in that relationship. Maybe you ought to start praying for people who aren't praying for you and see what happens. There's another layer here that we need to talk about because, again, recognizing that the love that Jesus has for these disciples is important. Even though they would turn their backs, he prayed that they would be united. He prayed for their protection. I think this is true for, the, for us. Even when you turn your back on God, he still loves you. In fact, that's one of the most central themes of the Bible. Can we just talk about this for a minute? One of the most central themes of the Bible is that despite the way that we treat God, despite the way that people treat God, he loves us. Over and over and over again, if you flip through pretty much every book in the Bible, you will see people who turn their backs from God, sin against God, and yet his response is love. The clearest example of this is through the sacrifice of Jesus, right? Because by going to the cross, Jesus, by giving his life as an atoning sacrifice, his blood covers our sins. I want you to know this today. God loves you. No matter no matter what you've done in your life, no matter what way that you feel like you've abandoned him or you turned your back against him or, or what sin is in between you and him, or even if you feel like today that you're, you're kind of, you got one foot out the door, you're walking away from your faith, you're not really sure if this is what you want anymore or, or what some people say is deconstructing their faith. No matter what you've done, what you feel, what you've experienced, regardless of any of that, Jesus loves you unconditionally. There's nothing that you can ever do, say, think, or feel that will make him love you more or less. This is what we find. And when we really see that and believe that, that type of love changes people. It it changes people. The disciples eventually, they would see that, they would feel that, and because of that, every one of them, besides the apostle John, would die for their belief in who Jesus was and what he taught about with the gospel. They gave their life for this because they knew it and they experienced it. Jesus, he knew that his disciples would turn away, but he prayed for them anyway. And this prayer of protection and unification, when it came true, these people, they changed the world. There's one more that we need to talk about, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about this because I, I think it's the most applicable to all of us. 
There was one more prediction that Jesus made, and it's that he predicted the denial of Peter. Okay, we're familiar with this. We read this. We know Peter's story. Peter's denial is one of the most recognizable stories and moments in the gospel, and that is in part because of the redemption that comes along with it. Here's what Jesus said, verse 34. He says, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus said this after Peter pointed out that, hey, listen, Jesus, I know what you just said, and I know, I know who you are, but even if they all fall away, I'm not going to, okay? You, I got your back, right? That's, what, that's how Peter felt. And so when it happens, and all the disciples, including Peter, were all scattered when Jesus was arrested and taken away, Peter, when he leaves him, he finds out that Jesus' prediction about him comes true. We find this in John chapter 18. Story continues with Peter around a coal fire. And there, three times, he denies knowing Jesus. And here's what we read, verse 27. It says, again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Can you imagine how he felt? I mean, he literally just had this face-to-face -face with Jesus. says, listen, Jesus, even if everyone else falls away, not me, I will die for you. Hours later, he's around a fire and he denies knowing who Jesus is. And when that rooster crows, he's reminded of this prediction and how it came about. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him and he called him to lead despite of it. I mean, I think you'd come up with a bigger failure than what, what, what Peter has done. He promised Jesus he wouldn't uh, abandon him and hours later, he denies even knowing him. But Peter's redemption is one of the most important moments in the New Testament because the truth is available to each and every one of us. You see, after Jesus' death and his resurrection, Peter had gone back to his old way of life, okay? He, he, he didn't know where he fed in in the story anymore because of this embarrassment that he had and how he handled this whole situation. And so he went back to the only other thing that he knew how to do, fish. And as he's fishing with a couple other guys and they fish through the night and they come up in the morning and they're approaching the shore, they see Jesus. And he's on the shore and he's around a fire. And, and, and they walk up and on that beach, around that fire, Peter is reinstated by Jesus to lead the church. You can read about this in John chapter 21, but I find it so interesting that in John chapter 18, that coal fire that Peter is standing around where he denies Jesus three times, in the Greek, this word for fire, this coal fire, is this Greek word anthrakion. The only other time that this word, this specific Greek word for this coal fire, the only other time that it's used is in John chapter 21, where Jesus is on the beach around a coal fire, and he reinstates Peter. If you remember the story three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And it's a reminder that despite our shortcomings, maybe even because of them, Jesus can call you to something more. For Peter, he called him to lead the church despite his denial, and that's exactly what he did. He led 50 days. Everybody say 50 days. 50 days. 50 days after Peter is standing at that fire denying Jesus, 50 days later he's at Pentecost and he preaches the very first gospel message and 3,000 people come to know Jesus. That's what redemption looks like. His shortcomings weren't the end of his impact. You see, for you, for me, 
I think that Jesus is calling us to something else besides, or maybe despite our shortcomings. I really want you to believe that. I really want you to feel that today, that despite your faults, despite the ways that you mess up, despite the ways that you fall short, God can use you. And the problem and the, the, the thing that really bothers me is I really feel like people don't believe that. They really, I, I think that people really feel that I've messed up too much or I, I, I've done too much or I, God can't use me. Not yet, at least. All throughout the Bible, where it was filled with stories and stories of people who had faults, real problems, probably things that, that were really worse than some of the things that we do, real issues, and they were not perfect And God used them to serve and to lead and to do incredible things. Here's the reality. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. He knew it. He predicted it. And Jesus knows the way that you will fall short in your life. He knows that you will sin. He knows that you will turn your back. He knows that you're not going to be perfect. But he calls you to lead anyway. So let me ask you this question. Where in your life have you disqualified yourself? Maybe maybe from doing something that God has for you where, where, where maybe Jesus hasn't disqualified you. I, I know that I'm guilty in this life. I find, myself, <laughs> I find myself making excuse after excuse sometimes of why I can't do things or why I can't pursue this or, 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 or lead in this way. And I come up with my own reasonings. Like I'm, I'm not ready or, or I'm not gifted or I'm not good enough. I don't have my stuff together. Whatever the excuse is, and I often find myself, I, I think I miss what God has put in front of me because I've already chosen fear over faith. I've already disqualified myself. Maybe you feel like that. And so that's why I asked you a question. Where have you disqualified yourself? Because those things that I felt, and maybe I imagine that some of you have felt as well, none of those things are the things that Jesus speaks in my life. He calls us, despite our shortcomings, he calls us to lead to trust him, to lead in his, to lean into his grace and his love and his mercy. What he did for Peter in this moment changed his life. And I truly believe that if we begin, if we just stopped believing the things that we think are true about us, that we've disqualified ourselves in ways that Jesus isn't speaking into our lives already, then maybe you'd be better positioned to do what God has for you in this life right now. Don't disqualify yourself in ways that Jesus hasn't. So what do I want you to do with all this? Because I've shared a lot of things that Jesus predicted about different people and how his response to them. But what does it mean for you? So what do I want you to do? Sure, I'd love for you to extend more grace to people in your life. I'd love for you to be praying for more people. I'd love for you to give God permission to use you before you count yourself out. But there's an overarching thing to all of this, to all of this that I can't really help but to point back to. The Old Testament had hundreds of prophecies about Jesus. And when Jesus walked this earth, he fulfilled many of them and with some yet to be fulfilled. He made his own predictions while he was here. He made his own predictions about what would happen on the very last night of his life. He predicted how the people closest to him would treat him. And what he does in the midst of all of that helps us to realize this, that Jesus knows who you are and what you've done and what you will do. That's a little terrifying to look at, right? He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. And he knows what you will do. But I hope you notice there's a comma there. Because the truth is, is that he knows who you are. He knows what you've done and what you will do. And he loves you regardless of it. When we come to terms with this, I mean, can you just read this for a second to yourself? 
He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. He knows your future, and he loves you still. This truth has the power to change everyone's life. It, it, it really does. Jesus loves you. He loves your neighbors. He loves your coworkers. He loves your family. He loves the people around you. And despite the ways that we sin, despite the ways that we fall short, he loves us. And this is demonstrated clearly and ultimately for us by the blood that was shed on the cross. We sing about it. We talk about it. We take communion every week. But this is the truth that we have to come to. The ultimate realization, the ultimate example for us. Church, we can't begin to normalize the truth of the gospel of what happens on the cross. Don't normalize this. God came down, lived a perfect life, gave his life as a sacrifice for you and his blood covers your sins for an eternity so that you can spend time with God. That is the gospel. That is the truth. It's not anything that you've done. It's not anything that you've deserved. It's not anything that you've earned. It's a gift because Jesus loves you. He knows that you will fall short. He knows it. And yet he loves you anyway. Maybe today the way that I want you to respond is this. Maybe today you've never really responded to that truth. Maybe you've counted yourself out before. Maybe you've kind of said some of those things that maybe I felt where I'm, I'm not good enough, right? I can't really commit to being a Christian because I've got this in my life or I'm dealing with this or I can't kick this or whatever it is. Matt, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. Well, maybe the invitation that Jesus says is I already know what you've done. I already know what you're gonna do. And guess what? I love you still. And I've got more for you. Maybe today you need to respond to his love for the very first time in some way. Or maybe you've done that and Maybe you need to respond by following him his example of extending grace or praying for other people. I don't know what the Spirit is leading you to feel in this moment, but what I do know is that you should respond to his love. You should. In some way, you should respond to his love. Jesus predicted the ways that Judas, his disciples, and Peter would all turn away from him. And he loved them anyway. Jesus doesn't run away from runaways. And what I want us to feel today is that he loves you. He loves you, even while knowing what you will do. And so let's praise him for who he is and what he's done for us. I want you to pray with me. Jesus, we are so thankful for the love that you have for us. I'm so thankful that if we were just to pause for a minute and just to remember one of the reasons that Easter is such a time of celebration it's because of who was on the cross and who walked out of the grave. It was you, the Son of God, fully man, fully divine. And what we learn in the midst of that, Lord, I'm so thankful for our text tonight, today, because I, I'm reminded that no matter what we do, no matter ways that we fall short, that we mess up, you love us fiercely. And your blood covers our sin. Thank you for the love that you have us, the grace that you give us. And God, I pray in this moment that we respond to your love. Passionately, authentically respond to the love that you give us. May it change the way that we worship you in this moment. May it change the way that we live because of what you have done for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty grave. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we sing one song in response.